This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of All Things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids. The podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Boy, I am as excited as a space episode for today, (laughs) but we are talking about the Earth. We often forget Earth is a full planet, like the other planets out in space, and when we get to talk about it as a celestial body, Jeff gets excited. Yeah, it's going to be a great show. What problem are we solving today? Where do earthquakes happen? Ooh, when and where do earthquakes happen? This is going to be an earth-shattering episode! Who is our guest today, Jeff? Yes, it is. Our guest today is the wonderful Dr. Wendy Bohan. She is an earthquake geologist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wendy. Oh. Hi, everybody. Woo! We are so delighted to have you, Dr. Wendy. And I'm, you know, I have to say that if you follow Dr. Wendy on LinkedIn, she has the coolest videos of earthquakes and talks all about it, which is how I was one of those followers. I was like, oh my gosh, these are amazing. So here comes my first question, which most of our listeners know. Did you always know that you wanted to be an earthquake geologist since you were a kid? No, actually, I wanted to be a ballerina and then I went to college to be an actress and I moved to LA and I was a professional actress in Hollywood for several years. Earthquakes were not even on my mind until they were literally on my mind and I got (sighs) shaken awake by the Hector Mine earthquake, which was a magnitude oh, 7.1. Oh my gosh. Yeah, out in the desert, but we felt it all over Southern California and it was really scary, but it was also thrilling. <laughs> and I wanted to learn more about it. And so that's how I got into earthquakes. Oh wow. my gosh. Okay. So <laughs> prior to moving to LA and getting that wonderful introduction to earthquakes, where did you grow up? Were there any earthquakes there? I grew up in Virginia near the ocean, and there was one earthquake that I had felt. I was in the fourth grade on the third story of the school building, and we thought a truck hit the school, but it was actually an earthquake. We didn't find out for a couple of days. Oh, Oh, my gosh. I love that you remember both what grade you were in and what floor of the building you were in when that happened. Well, earthquakes are kind of like that. So when we went out to L.A. to move our daughter out there pre-pandemic, while we were in the air, they had one of their biggest, this was a few years ago, they had one of their biggest earthquakes. Like, thankfully, we landed, everything was fine. The next day, the aftershock was like seven point something. I grew up in Illinois. I've lived on my whole world, uh, life on the East Coast. I was, looked at my husband. I was like, what is this? <laughs> right? And the whole bed so is thrilling. shaking and the TV's <laughs> going back and forth. And I was like, 
is this like a welcome to California, Swansons? Yes. <laughs> like, so what that was, that was called the Ridgecrest Earthquake Sequence. It happened in July of 2019. Yes. It was a magnitude 6.4 earthquake 6.4. That happened out in the desert, kind of in between LA and San Francisco, but off to the east. And then the next day there was a magnitude 7.1. Yes. So in about 5% of all earthquakes, there is an earthquake after the first sort of largest earthquake wow. that's actually bigger. And that then is, oh, wow. is the main shock. So it doesn't happen very often, about 5% of the time, but that was one of those times. And so, yeah, that was quite a welcome. I'm a little bit jealous. Well, I mean, so we are newbies to all this. So we're like, well, you know, do we go outside? Do we do whatever? My daughter runs to the bathroom, you know, and stands in the doorway. I mean, we don't know. This well, is, do you do all that? I guess the question is, what do you do during an earthquake? Oh, yes, I love this question because everybody <laughs> needs to know what to do. I mean, one of the things that comes out of this, right? I felt earthquakes in Virginia. There are earthquakes in California. Right. Everywhere can feel shaking from an earthquake. So if you feel earthquake shaking, what you do is drop down to the ground, take cover underneath a sturdy object like a table, and then hold on tight until all the shaking is stopped. Okay. They used to say stand in a doorway, but that was the kind of before houses were built as well as they are now. Now, the biggest concern is that things in your home could fall on you and hurt you. Yes. Your TV or your chest of drawers, a mirror that's hanging. And so we want you to get underneath a table to protect yourself from all those things that can fall. Well, that's good. I'll know the next time. (laughs) Well, that's the thing about earthquakes. There's always a next time because they're always happening. Not in Florida. I live in Florida. (laughs) Yeah, but you travel. I do. You'll get a nice welcome to somewhere else. Florida has earthquakes too. Florida has earthquakes too. Oh. In fact, from 1975 to 1995, there were four states in the United States that didn't have any earthquakes. Florida was one of them. Can you guess the other three? Alaska. I'm originally from Massachusetts. I'm going to say that. Nope, you're both wrong. Alaska actually has the most earthquakes of any state in the U.S. Really? It's Florida, North Dakota, Wisconsin. Oh, no, I've forgotten the other one. And South Dakota. Did I already say that one? No. You did not. Okay. Wow. Yeah, Alaska has more than a thousand earthquakes recorded there every single month. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. They are in that ring of fire. I mean, they are the northern part of that. Ring of yeah. fire. Wow. And so, yeah, right let's, along. let's think about this critically for a second. Yeah. Okay. And I think Jeff is on the track, right? Where do most earthquakes happen? Right. We've said that they didn't happen much in Florida. I did feel one in Virginia, you know, but that was a long time ago and there haven't been many more since then. But right. there are a lot in California. There's a right. lot in Alaska. Yes. And that's because those are along the edge of the plate boundary. So the oh, surface of the earth, right, is covered by that thin skin of rock. That's the crust. It's like the shell of a hard-boiled egg, thin and brittle. And it's broken into big pieces. And the places where those pieces meet are the places where we have the most earthquakes. Yes. In the U.S., that's along the West Coast. And it curves up along the coast of Alaska and then right. down through Japan, down through Indonesia. Right, right, right. So that's the Pacific Plate, the boundaries of the Pacific Plate. But there are plates all over. So yeah. if you look at a map of earthquakes, you can actually map out the boundaries of the tectonic plates just by looking yes. at the earthquakes. Yes. Very cool. I have to point out, listeners, just so you know, 
Dr. Wendy is not looking these things up in her research. <laughs> Dr. Wendy is answering all of this from memory. So can you tell she's a little bit passionate about <laughs> earthquake yes. geology? Yes. So when you started studying earthquake geology, what was that like in terms of you didn't know you were going to do it. You had started becoming an actress. What was it like to get started? Was it like, you know, traveling along the ring of fire until you experienced one? Or <laughs> get started no, I did have some geology background because I took geology classes in college. I actually okay. really enjoyed geology classes and picked that up as another field of study that I had, but not earthquakes. I liked caves. So totally oh. thing. I mean, it's all rocks, but yes. totally different. <laughs> and so once I felt that earthquake, I went to work at the USGS, the US Geological Survey, and they do right. a lot of okay. studies of earthquakes. And it was a great chance for me to combine my theater, talking to people, being in front of people, yes. and the knowledge that I had from college about geology and about earthquakes. And so I listened to the scientists. I did a lot of reading. And eventually, I went back to school and got a master's degree and a PhD where I got to actually do the research, which is amazing because there are things about earthquakes that we just really still have no idea about. There's so much. Wow. Left There's so many opportunities. And these things make a real difference. So if people are interested in science, if you're interested in computer coding, if you're right. interested in going out in the field and looking at rocks, there's a real okay. place for you to explore as a geologist. Yeah. So, okay. That leads right into our question. So when and where do earthquakes happen? So you sort of told us where you might find of some of them. How do you know when? See, that's the trick, right? Yeah. We know where they're going to happen. They happen mainly along those plate boundaries. And we can figure out where the faults are using different methods. So you have GPS in your phone, yes. maybe GPS in your car. We also yes. have GPS that we use for science. We put them in oh. the ground. They look very different and they're much more <laughs> precise. Yes. But they can tell us how the ground is moving in three dimensions. And if you imagine that you have oh. one on either side of a fault, and one is moving north and one is moving south, something is in the middle. And that yes. something is a fault. But then how do you find where exactly the fault is? Because faults are underground. Yes. Right. The landscape actually has clues that can tell you huh. where the faults are. They can create basins. They can create little hills or ridges. They can create mountains. And so if you oh. floor, then you okay. can figure out where the faults are. There's technology to do that, something called LIDAR, light detection and ranging, basically yep. like scanning the ground with a laser to make a map. More like a laser you play with, you know, with your cat, not like a laser that's going to cut trees in half. <laughs> <laughs> but once we do that, we have to find out when. So those two things we're finding out where, right? When is the question. That's what everybody wants to know. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And so one of the ways that we can figure that out it's by finding where the faults are, and then we dig down into the fault. Oh, because wow. when an earthquake happens, it breaks the rocks. It moves the rocks around, yes. and it leaves evidence behind. And so okay. like a geologic detective, we go and we look at evidence of these ancient earthquakes, and then we date the layers of the rocks to figure out when those earthquakes happened. So if, say we dig down into a fault, and we see six different earthquakes we know when those six earthquakes happen, and then we get an average wow. of when earthquakes happen on that fault. But a fault's not like a baby or a math test, right? Where you're expecting it to happen at a certain time, and if it doesn't, it's <laughs> it doesn't work okay. like that. 
It's more yeah. like a thunderstorm. You know, thunderstorms are going to happen um, in summer, but you don't know exactly when. It could be tomorrow. It right, could be next week. It right. could be next month. Except with geology, it's longer time spans. So we have a good idea of when, but we don't know exactly when. Okay. So, so when you're digging down, you can actually see evidence of different earthquakes that happened in the same fault and the different times? Do the rocks look different? How do you tell? That's such a good question. So there's different ways you can do it. I'm going to use one example. Okay. When rocks are laid down, they're laid down horizontally for the most part, sedimentary rocks like dirt. Yes. Yes. You can think about it like the mail. You know, you come in on Monday, you throw the mail on the counter, you come in on Tuesday, you throw the mail on the counter, (laughs) you come in on Wednesday, you throw the mail on the counter and it piles up and it mostly is flat. And the oldest parts are at the bottom. The mail from Monday is the oldest. The mail from Friday is on the top. The rocks are the same. When an earthquake happens, it's like it shuffles all the mail around and it tears it. Right. And so then we'll be able to see that those rocks have been moved. They no longer match up across the side of the fault. Maybe one side gets pushed up a little bit. And then what happens is nothing. There's a long period of time where more rocks get laid down. More and then there'll be another earthquake. And so those new rocks and the old rocks will get broken and moved. And so we can see different times when it was the surface of the ground in the past. And we can figure out when that got broken and we can see the rocks that were moved and damaged. And mostly what we use to date those are organic particles. So it could be trees, right. it could be bones, it could be shells. So carbon-14 is one of the ways yep. that we actually date those layers. And that's how we figure out when, yeah, when the earthquakes happen. That's but we so cannot cool. predict them. We don't know exactly when, but it is a when, not an if, because earthquakes are going to continue to happen. Yes. Nothing we can do to stop it. Right. That's okay, cool. so you're gathering a ton of information like you were just explaining about the layers and then there'll be some time and then there'll be another earthquake and there'll be more evidence underground. What is all of that information and data teaching you to teach us about the earth? Right. Great, great question. So there's a few things that it's teaching us. If we just had one of these paleo seismic trenches or places we had dug into the ground, that's giving us an information about how often the fault has earthquakes. But it doesn't tell us how big they are. And so that information, we need to have more trenches and more places along that same fault. Because the magnitude, size of the earthquake is partially dependent upon the length of the fault that breaks during the Ah. earthquake. Yeah, so faults unzip like a zipper. So you can imagine a short little fault like a zipper on your pants is like, and that was just a small earthquake. But if you're unzipping a sleeping bag, takes a lot more effort and that's a lot wow. more energy, which means a lot more shaking. Yes. So if we see evidence for earthquakes at the same time and lots of different faults or lots of different trenches along the fault, we know those were large magnitude earthquakes. That tells us something about the amount of shaking you can expect to feel and about how often we can expect to feel that shaking. Right. We can work with engineers and city planners, state and local governments to say, this is the threat. We know that the earthquakes can happen here. This right. is about how much they shake the ground. And this is about how often they happen. We need to build to withstand them. Yes. We need to make our right. streets safe, our buildings safe, our bridges and roads safe. How can we do that? 
And then we have to make sure people know what to do when they feel the earthquake shaking. So do you remember what to do when you feel the shaking? Go under a table. table. So don't be like running into the doorway and screaming, which is what one of my daughters did, but that's okay. That's right. Drop down (laughs) to the ground, take cover underneath the sturdy object and hold on until all the shaking has stopped. So, okay. So, I mean, there's so much. I know, so I live in Florida, so we know how to build houses to withstand hurricanes and winds and all this kind of stuff. Can you give us some ideas of kind of what the engineers do? Because you said you talked to them. How do you build something to withstand an earthquake, which is happening underneath the earth? Right. So earthquakes don't just shake the ground back and forth. Right. They shake the ground in all different directions. They give it an upwards push, a sideways, a downward drop and a sideways thrust in the other direction. So one of the things that we know about buildings and earthquakes is that they need to be able to flex and bend. So Ah. think about standing in a forest with a strong wind moving through. What do trees do? They sway. Right. They They flex and bend. So we know that structures that have wood frames often do really well because they can Ah. flex and bend with the shaking. Whereas structures that are made out of like concrete blocks are very brittle. Right. They're very strong. They'll fall over if they shake like that. Yes. So that's one thing we can do is the type of materials that we use are really important. Okay. Another thing is a lot of places, before we really understood a lot about earthquakes, we would build buildings in certain ways in certain places, right? You sort of get the the architectural style. Yes. In LA, across California, there wasn't a lot of space to build. And so they wanted to put parking garages underneath apartment buildings, right? Right. Okay. On the street. But they didn't actually make walls there. They would have columns. So it was sort of more open. Right. Feel, but that's called a soft first story. And what we learned is that those soft first stories will collapse, pancake down. Oh, no. Wow. And so one of the things you can do is go back to these older buildings that were built before we really understood what we needed to do. to right. be And you can retrofit them. So one of the things you can do is add in something called a shear wall. It's basically putting in more supports in buildings so that they can withstand that side-to-side shaking that can be so devastating and damaging for things that are not reinforced in the right way. Wow. There's a lot to this. (laughs) Very much so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Man, Japan, they are the leaders in this sort of thing. Cities in Japan often sway, but rarely topple. They have all sorts of things. Some of their buildings are built on rollers so that it absorbs some of the energy from the earthquake. Wow. Some of them have big pendulums so that it absorbs the energy from the earthquake. So they've really done a lot of work trying to figure out how to live with earthquakes because we do need to live live with this, right? We can't just move our cities and towns away and we can't stop things from happening. So how do we be more resilient? How do we learn how to both survive the earthquake but also thrive after the earthquake is over. Exactly. Yes. Sure. And obviously with America, as we were already mentioning, California is one of the most susceptible states, but it's also one of the most populous states. Yes. So my brain is starting to think about there's lots of buildings, homes, businesses, et cetera, that were built before we knew as much as we knew now. Are there ways to like re-engineer buildings that are already up to make them a little bit better, as you were just mentioning, like with those 
underground parking structures with apartment buildings? Or is it, well, we kind of, you know, for a house, there's really not much you can do. We got to hope it holds on. And if it ever comes (laughs) down, we'll rebuild it better. So there's a lot of things you can do. If you're in a house, you can do something that's basically tying your house down to the foundation. Because Ah. people would just build the foundation and build the house on top of it. But the house didn't need to be connected because gravity was holding it down. Well, what happens? Yes. Suddenly, gravity is not quite. It's, mo- it's moving <laughs> around now. Yes, that's not good. Gravity's fighting back. Yeah, they can shake you hard enough that it exceeds the force of gravity, can throw you in the air. Wow. And so you have to tie your house down to the foundation so that it doesn't slide off. You can do things like securing your water heater to the wall. Businesses and the larger structures can do retrofitting There's something called unreinforced masonry. You know how people put like bricks and decorative stuff along? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that stuff peels right off and collapses. (laughs) So you can do things where you now, you don't nail it in, but you essentially drill holes and attach it in a more secure and sturdy way. So there's lots of ways that we can make buildings a lot safer. Sometimes the buildings are really old and maybe it's more cost effective to just rebuild and start over. Yes. Yes. Especially if it's a historic building, even if it's old, we want to try and maintain those and make sure that we have a record and a history. And so there's a lot that we can do to secure those types of buildings. That's cool. So I want to talk a little bit about why we can never get away from earthquakes. Let's talk a little bit about the dynamic earth and how the whole planet just, it's going to keep moving, right? It's going to keep shifting. Yeah. Our planet is Our planet is alive. You know, sometimes we talk about the earth as a heat engine because we have the core and it's releasing heat and all of this. I don't like to think about it that way. I like to think about the earth as a living creature that we have to care for. And Ah. you can see images from NASA where it looks like the earth is breathing. Yes, I've seen those. Snow and, and it comes up and it comes down. All of the systems on earth are connected, just like all of the systems in our body are connected. Yes. And one of the systems that helps to drive that is plate tectonics. So volcanoes are part of plate tectonics. Yep. Right. Part of plate tectonics. And if our planet was dead, everything else would be dead too, right? We couldn't maintain our atmosphere. We couldn't maintain our biosphere and our animals. And so plate tectonics is one of the ways that keeps our planet alive and healthy. One of the outcomes of that is earthquakes and volcanoes, and that's a hazard, but it doesn't have to be a disaster. Exactly. We have the choice to make the places where we live and work safe from these different hazards. We just have to be thoughtful about it and be careful. Exactly. I love that. Yes. Yes. And talking about the whole earth as a global system like this, You know, I think everybody knows about global warming and what people are doing to that fits into that and what ways that they can help. Is there anything that individual people are doing with plate type that are causing more earthquakes? Or is this more of a like people just need to be educated that this is the earth that we live on and we need to be a part of it? So it's a little bit of both. For the most part, earthquakes are just happening and we just have to learn to live with them. We want to understand them and we want to be able to forecast what might happen so we can prepare in a way. But people can actually cause earthquakes. So Mm. what happens, you know, you may have heard of fracking. 
Oh, yes. Fracking is not actually what causes the bigger earthquakes. So the basic idea is that there's a lot of gas and oil that are trapped in rocks, but they're not. it's not just like in a big hole in the ground where you can pull it out. It's actually trapped in the pores inside the rocks. Yes. Right. So what energy companies will do is they will inject water into the ground, deep, deep in the ground, and there's a slurry in that water. So it's like yes. awesome. sand and stuff, and it'll break the rock open and kind of hold the rock apart so that the oil and gas can come out and they can slurp everything back up to the surface. Once they've slurped everything, that's the fracking part, right? That's yes. Once yes. they've slurped it all back up, they have to do something with all of the stuff they don't want, that slurry. It's called right. waste. And so what they do with it is they put it deep, 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 deep down inside the earth because the earth can act like a giant sieve and clean yep. it out. But if they put it in a place where there happen to be faults, then that can lubricate the faults and cause earthquakes in these places. So right. there's lots of places where they do wastewater injection and there aren't earthquakes, but in places like Kansas, Oklahoma, Northern Texas, do wastewater injection there. And it turns out earthquakes start happening. And some of them are pretty big. There was a magnitude 5.7 in Pawnee, Oklahoma, that did damage to people's homes. That was a result. Wow. Injection. In fact, the wow. largest earthquake in Canada in a good long while was a magnitude 5.6. That was also the result of wastewater injection. So. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's one of those things you need to think about too. Sometimes, you know, it's a balance, as you said, that think about the earth as a system. So I've also heard, because we talked about this a little at the beginning, that when they have little tremors, is that a predictor that you might have a big one? Um, Usually no. Okay. So only about 5% of earthquakes have something called a foreshock, which is an earthquake before okay. the bigger earthquake. As we get better technology and things like AI, we may be able to detect smaller and smaller earthquakes. Uh, but as it stands right now, there is nothing that we know of that can tell us that an earthquake is about to happen. In wow. fact, we put instruments deep down inside the San Andreas Fault in the place where earthquakes began, in a place where all these little earthquakes were happening to see right. if we come up with something. Does it get hotter? Is there more water? Is there some electrical okay. signal? Are right. There tiny earthquakes that we just couldn't detect at the surface. Then you know what we found? What? Nothing. Really? Okay. So does that mean that there's nothing happening? There's nothing to detect? Or does that mean we don't know what we're looking for? There you go. Or does that mean that we don't know how to measure it? Uh, so yeah. We don't know if there is a precursor, but if there is, we haven't found it yet. Yeah. Well, so okay. then also, why do you have aftershocks then too? Oh, aftershocks are really cool. They're the only earthquakes we can predict. And there's like different mathematical laws that describe them. Okay. I think of aftershocks, like, have you ever been in a hurricane and kind of an old house and it's like lots of wind and yes. then after the wind dies down, the house still keeps creaking. Yes. And it kind of settles into place. It's very much like that. Oh. So the earthquake happens and it breaks the rocks. But it puts stress on the rocks all around the edges of the place that broke. Okay. And so those are still kind of crackling along. Those are the aftershocks or those crackles ah. on the edges as the tectonic plates are kind of settling into this new position. Okay. Those are fun too, because I think we experienced a couple of those after that big one. Oh, well, yeah. Aftershocks happen after just about every large earthquake. In fact, <laughs> you you can tell. You can tell. 
we were not the Californians because the Californians are walking. All of a sudden we're like, what is that? <laughs> Everyone else is just walking along. Yeah, it's an aftershock. Yeah, they're very blase. I mean, you, we get freaking out. I remember when I was working at the USGS, I'd come home from work and I'd be finally sitting down and watching a show. You know, I'd have some popcorn and I'd feel an earthquake and I'd be like, oh, I gotta go back to work now. <laughs> Everybody else is just worried about stuff falling off the shelves. And Dr. Wendy's like, oh, no, I got to go back to work. (laughs) So it sounds like you are after, like money scientists, are after more data to find out the answers to these questions. We all know there are hurricane hunters that are out there chasing hurricanes to, to, to learn more about them. I've never heard of an earthquake hunter. Are there earthquake scientists that are traveling around trying to find more data where more earthquakes are happening? Yes. (laughs) Not in the same way that storm chasers. You you don't chase them. (laughs) Yeah, they kind of show up. (laughs) And and what we do is we put out more instruments. So the instruments that Uh, measure earthquakes are called seismometers. And you can think of them kind of like pixels in a camera. The more of them there are, the more resolution we have about what's happening uh, inside okay. the earth. Yeah. And so when you think of an earthquake chaser, you think of, I think of, people going out and putting around more and more instruments to try and chase more and more data and get more and more resolution on what's happening after okay. the earthquake. In fact, so there was a magnitude 5.8 in Virginia in 2011. Very mm-hmm. unusual. It was actually the most widely felt earthquake in the history of the United States. Was felt wow. all the way from Canada to Florida and across. To I like, think I remember that one. Yeah, no I think kidding. I had friends living in Virginia who were like, it, "There's an earthquake here!" Like, yeah, it was unusual. Wow. And the reason that it was felt so widely is because the rocks on the East Coast transmit the seismic waves really well, so it can be felt oh. over about a ten times larger distance than a similar size magnitude earthquake on the West Coast. Wow. Anyway. That was really interesting because we were like, what is this earthquake in Virginia? Like they're pretty rare that earthquakes happen on the East Coast because not on a plate boundary. But right after that, everybody's like, we got to get more instruments out. We got to get more instruments out. We (laughs) wanted to see the aftershocks. We wanted more resolution so we could understand what was happening underneath Virginia. So all these teams set out and they're putting out instruments. It's in the middle of the summer in Virginia. There's ticks, there's poison ivy, there's thorns <laughs> and greenbrier, and they are trudging through. And then you know what it was? A hurricane two days later came up the oh. coast. So they were putting out seismic instruments in a hurricane with the ticks. And oh my gosh. <laughs> so kudos, kudos to you, Bill Barnhart and friends for putting out. <laughs> Scientists will get their data no matter what. Yes. We're like the mailman of earthquakes. There you go. I'm going back to what you called them before, geologic detectives. I think that's a great, great one. Okay. Well, believe it or not, that was a very short 30 minutes. We have now reached the point in our show where we ask our guests to give us a challenge. I'm very curious what your challenge will be for us, Dr. Wendy. My challenge, are you ready? Yes. Well, please, is to build your own seismometer. Oh, it's not as hard as you might think. You may not, depending on the type you choose to build, you may not actually be able to detect earthquakes, but you can start to understand how seismometers work and what it is that they measure. And there's actually seismometers that you can build, like the Lego seismometer, where you can measure earthquakes around the world. You can pick them up. 
So no, really? really? Yeah, yeah. Never there knew all that. Kinds of fairly inexpensive seismometers that you can buy or build that will detect earthquakes. Or I do it here with an Amazon box and a cup and a pen and some rocks and a string. So you can do it all different kinds of ways, depending on your time and budget. <laughs> okay. That I, is, I love that. I do too. That is fantastic. And so all of our listeners will make sure we have that on our website for you to go look up. That'll be fun. Before Jennifer ends this show, I do have to ask, do you have a favorite earthquake in history? Oh my gosh, that's kind of hard. I really like the Hector Mine earthquake because that was the earthquake that got me. That into... got you. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to go look yeah, that I think one up. It would have to be Hector Mine. Also, it's really hard to be an earthquake scientist sometimes because earthquakes really, they hurt people and they can. Yes, sure. And so the Hector Mine earthquake was a really good earthquake because it happened in the desert. It didn't do a lot of damage. Right. Didn't kill anybody. So it was an earthquake you could enjoy instead of an earthquake where you were really sad and heartbroken while you were studying it. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been a fantastic episode. Thank you so much for educating us about earthquakes. And thank you for being on Solve It for Kids, Dr. Wendy. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. Let's keep shaking things up in science, you guys. (laughs) You know, I understand that earthquakes are scary and a little terrifying and they cause damage. Jeff's never been in one, and after talking about them this long, I feel like I want to become an earthquake hunter and go find one (laughs) just so I can experience what it feels like when the Earth, our planet, shakes beneath your feet. Wow. It's very interesting to be involved in one, and especially growing up in the Midwest and then living in Florida when we were out in California. It was kind of like, what is happening? It was very disorienting. But had I been with Dr. Wendy and had done her challenge to have build my own seismometer, I could have figured out what was happening, right? And been like, hey, it's an earthquake. Absolutely. And here's one. Lots of challenges that are out there in the STEM world. A lot of us have already seen or maybe done I bet there's a whole lot of us that have never built our own seismometer. So be sure to check our website for the instructions on this one. This could be fun. Absolutely. Yes. So you can find the instructions on our website, as Jeff said, solveitforkids.com. And if you build a seismometer or you've just been through an earthquake and you want to share your experience with us, tag us on social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We would love to hear from you. And also check out Dr. Wendy on her YouTube channel, which we'll have on the SolveForKids.com website because she is so cool to just listen to. And you will learn so much more about earthquakes than you ever imagined. Absolutely. Until next time, Jen and Jeff will be watching Dr. Wendy on her YouTube (laughs) channel. But also listen to this episode again because Dr. Wendy was wonderful. Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve Solve It it for Kids. Kids.